with uh, Al starting on Monday and speaking next Sunday, Brian thought it'd be a great idea to build a taller, skinnier pulpit. I don't know what I'm supposed to take from that, but <laughs> it didn't take into account people like me who need large print Bibles, but this takes up the whole thing. So I'm going to use this stool here, but it's a very lovely, Esther, it's a very lovely pulpit that he built and uh, don't say anything negative about it to Brian. And Al, you better love it because he built it for you. <laughs> and it's happy uh, Labor Day weekend. Summer is over. For those of us who have uh, kids, it's back to school. What a sad, sad week it is. They're all not going to be in the house all day long. Um, yes, using up the internet when you are in the country and your internet is limited. Uh, anyhow, I want to begin this morning with a sentence that's going to make you think, and I use the word think very purposefully. Uh, and here's the sentence. What you think about how another person thinks about you will impact the way you think about them. Enough thinks. What you think about how or what another person thinks about you will impact or influence the way you think about them. Your response, your attitude towards another person is influenced and impacted by the way that you think that they feel about you. And I think I've told this story before. It's, I've heard it many times. But the story of the man who's having a really hard time getting out of bed on a Sunday morning. And his wife says, come on, you got to get out of bed. You got to go to church. Uh, and he goes, I don't want to go to church. The people at that church, they don't like me. But she persisted and said, you've got to get up and go to church. And he said, well, give me three good reasons why I should go to church. And so she said, well, first of all, it's Sunday. Secondly, I'm your wife and I'm going to church. And third, you're the pastor. (laughs) Yes, it's a joke. And thank you for those who are watching online. There was more laughter to this joke than most of my jokes. So (laughs) thank you, Ruth. I did hear you. That was a joke, but I want you to imagine how you would feel if I told you that there's someone here this morning, and they saw you at the store this week, but they avoided you because they didn't want to be seen in public with you. They don't really like you. They find you kind of boring to talk to. How would that make you feel? How would that make you feel like acting towards them? You see, a reality in life is that we will think and respond to a person according to how we think they perceive, they feel, maybe even the actions that they show towards us. And and this reality carries itself through so many different relationships. Uh, You see it in a dating relationship. How many couples that finally get together and you say, well, what took you so long? And the one part of the one person in the couple says, I like this person for so long, but I never imagined that they would ever want to go out with a person like me. Like, Like, how long did it take you, Allison? For you to ask me out. 
That's true. She did ask me out. What's that? I know. The same holds true in a marriage relationship. If you think your spouse is angry with you, it's probably going to affect the way you respond to them. If you're ticked off at your spouse, it's probably going to affect the way that you respond to them. The reality carries its way through in the office, in the neighborhood, uh, in extended families. How we think another person thinks about us will impact and influence the way that we think and the way that we respond to that person. And it even carries its way into our relationship, our relating to God. Daniel read from one of my very favorite psalms this morning. And what desperate questions King David asked. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? You'll hide your face from me. You won't listen to me. You won't answer to me. Throughout Scripture, you see these, these cries and, and pleads, pleas of desperation based on the person, the writer's lament, based on how they perceive God must be feeling or acting towards them at that moment. But it's not just in Scripture. I'm sure many of us know someone who has hesitated giving their life to the Lord. Why? Because they can't imagine the Lord would want anything to do with a person like them. We know people who have turned their back on God because in their estimation, God has not acted kindly or lovingly or justly towards them. I've shared this with you before, but my my sister, she went through about a five-year period after having lost her husband in a, a tragic motorcycle accident, after my father passed away, and then my mother passed away. And she was at a point in her life as a follower of God, where she said, God, if one more thing happens in my life, if you take one more thing away from me, I don't think I can believe in you anymore. I don't think I can follow you anymore. I don't think I can love you anymore. Now, when my favorite verses in scripture is Romans 12 verse 1. And I love it because it's a, it's a summary of the kind of response that God, God has called for us to give to him. And Paul says, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that God has done for us, here's how we should properly respond to this great salvation that we have. And Paul doesn't say that we should just say the believer's prayer and then continue living life as it were. Paul says, no, the proper response, the logical response, the the proper response of worship is that we offer our entire selves to God. That that it's a, a total sacrifice to God. That's the proper response that God is calling from each and every one of us who would choose and who profess to be his follower. But here's the problem. If the reality in life is that what you think another person thinks about you is going to impact and influence the way that you think and respond and act towards that person, and if that reality holds true in our relationship with God, you can't be in a proper relationship with God. You you can't be serving God to the fullness of your capacity. You can't be sincerely worshiping God if you are not 
truly perceiving how God actually feels about you. We can't respond with this total sacrifice that Paul calls for in Romans 12 verses 1 if we truly don't believe that God deserves that kind of response. This morning we have come to the end of our Let Me Remind You series. And I thought it would be very fitting this morning to close with one last reminder. And the reminder is this. No, no matter what you might be thinking, no matter what you might be perceiving, regardless of the circumstances of your life, God loves you. God loves you. And I want to look at this reminder from kind of an obscure passage. Uh, not a book that we often turn to. Actually, we often turn to it because it comes just before Matthew. And so when we're looking for the first book of the New Testament, we often turn to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. But it's Malachi I want us to consider this morning in chapter 1. And chapter 1 is such a great chapter because it is so relevant and so practical, and it applies to us today. And yet as you read it, you might go, what in the world does Malachi chapter 1 have for us? And yet it's in Malachi chapter 1. We find out how we can overcome our doubt and, and our uh, misunderstanding and our indifference to God's love. And if you carry on in chapter 1, we're just going to consider five verses uh, in chapter 1 uh, to your glee. Uh, but if you continued on in chapter 1, you actually see what the consequences are. Living a life of indifference to how God truly feels uh, about you. But I'm just going to look at the very first five verses uh, this morning. We're going to look, how, how do we overcome our doubts, our misunderstandings, and our indifference towards the love that God has for us. And so if you would, turn to Malachi chapter 1, and if you want to cheat, turn to Matthew, and then flip one couple of pages back, and you will hit Malachi chapter 1. And uh, before I read any of it, let's quickly, well, verse 1 of Malachi chapter 1 says, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi and uh, probably helpful to give a, a really quick history lesson so that uh, you can be up to speed with where we are at uh, in the writing of Scripture. And so if you know anything about the Old Testament history, you know that the Jewish people were in tribes and the tribes were split in, into two nations. You had Israel in the north, you had Judah in the south. Because of their sin and unfaithfulness and their inability to, to live up to their end of the bargain in the covenant with God, uh, Israel uh, was conquered by Assyria, uh, and th that nation uh, was defeated. Uh, and then the southern kingdom, not having learned from their northern neighbors, uh, fell to the same fate. Uh, and they were um, conquered by Babylon. And Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem were knocked down, and, and the temple was burnt. But 70 years later, Babylon is defeated by Persia. And uh, King Cyrus of Persia uh, allows some of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And the rebuilding of the temple begins, but then all of a sudden it grinds to a halt. And for 16 years, there's no work 
being done on the temple. And the prophet Haggai comes onto the scene. And he confronts these people who've gone back to Jerusalem who are doing everything but rebuilding the temple. They're looking after themselves uh, and confronts them about this. And all of a sudden, the temple rebuilding continues. And four years later, the temple is finished. About 60 years later, Ezra the priest uh, comes to Jerusalem uh, and institutes uh, temple worship and, and, and observance of the law. About 13 years after that, Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem and he rebuilds the walls uh, and he uh, encourages social and political and, and religious reform. Well, then Nehemiah gets called back to Persia. And all of a sudden, the people of God living in Jerusalem fall into sin again. And it's at this point in history that scholars believe Malachi comes onto the scene. Not a whole lot is known about Malachi. But we do have his message. As I said, it's a very relevant and practical message, but if you just read it without understanding the context, it's a little difficult to understand. And I think it's very helpful for us to understand what it was like for those people living back in Malachi's day. Uh, Two of the words that I would use to describe what life was like for them are the words discouragement and disappointment. Yes, they were back in Jerusalem. They were farming the land again. The temple had been rebuilt. The walls were being rebuilt. But if you ask them, they would point to a lot of different reasons why they felt shortchanged by God. That they felt hurt. That God wasn't living up to his end of the bargain. That God had abandoned them. You see, they had hung their hats on a lot of the prophecies and promises that had come before that in their opinion hadn't come to fruition. And so they were discouraged and they were disappointed. And as a result, uh, they lost a lot of their zeal for the Lord. It had kind of fizzled out. Their spirituality was sloppy. Uh, their, their religion was hollow and, and, and ritualistic. We'd probably use the word indifference to describe what their feelings were towards God and, and God's feelings, whatever they might have been, towards them. Disappointment and discouragement with God. But the other thing that you need to know about them and what, what their life was like, which is kind of interesting when you consider that they were discouraged and disappointed and they felt themselves neglected and, and abandoned by God if you ask them how they were doing spiritually, most of them would tell you, well, just fine. Like, we're the ones that came back to Jerusalem. Like, some of us actually helped rebuild the walls. We're observing the law. We're we're going to the temple. We're, we're, We're following the rituals that are prescribed. We're fine. But that wasn't God's evaluation of them. In God's eyes, there was no passion. There's no communication. Like, God could go away for a week and they wouldn't even notice. And so God wants to confront them 
about their indifference and their apathy and their misperceptions of his love for them. And so he gives Malachi a mandate to call his people back to a vibrant relationship with him. That was 2,500 years ago. I just want you to consider for a moment how relevant I think this passage is. Because I'm sure I'm not the only person here who has found myself as a follower of God discouraged and disappointed. Feeling at times that God is ignoring me, that God has neglected me, that God isn't fulfilling or, or carrying out the things that I thought he was going to. Things aren't going just like I thought they should. And yet if people ask me how I'm doing, I'd say, I'm doing fine. I go to church on Sunday. I serve at my church. I even go up to the front and speak. Oh, everything's dandy. And yet God knows. God knows the times when I'm dry and I'm lacking passion and I'm failing to communicate with him when I'm indifferent and I'm apathetic and I'm just going through the motions. And my guess is there's some of you who can relate. And so where the people of Malachi's day found themselves is very similar to where we can find ourselves. And so we move into this message that God has for these people and by extension has for us through uh, the writing, uh, the prophecy of Malachi And we get to verse 2. And we find a declaration. God isn't blasting them. He just wants them to, to know the facts. And God says, I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. And we hear that in English and we go, well, yeah, but maybe that's the problem. Yeah, you you have loved me, but 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 where's your love now? You have to understand the tense of that phrase, I have loved you, is a perfect tense. It literally means I have loved you, I do love you, and I will always love you. This is coming from God, Almighty God, creator of the universe, infinite in all of his attributes, talking to these fickle, unfaithful, indifferent, apathetic people of Malachi's day and people of our day. He's saying, I have loved you. I do love you and I always will love you. And that word love in the Hebrew is is a rare word for love in the Old Testament. And I'll probably butcher the pronunciation. pronunciation. Uh, It's the word Ahab. I don't know if it's Ahab or Ahab. Uh, But it's a very relational word. It literally uh, implies, I have embraced you. I have displayed, I have demonstrated, I've exhibited my affection for you. Imagine that. The God of the universe, almighty God, infinite in all of his attributes, saying to them and saying to us, I've embraced you. I have exhibited my affection to you. 
And then you carry on and you see the people's response. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? You say you've loved us, but where's the proof? And we get that. Like we've all been taught at some point that if you truly love another person, then it will be evident. You will demonstrate that love. It's true in our marriage. If Allison asks me to do something that I really don't want to do, and I'm brave enough to say, if she says, will you do such and such? And I say, no, why do I have to do that? And her response would be, because you love me. Right? Our kids understand it. I say to them, why would I get that for you? Why would I do that for you? Because you love us. And so we get it. Love is evidenced, is demonstrated in our actions, in the things that we do. And the people of Malachi's day understood this as well. God, you say that you have loved us, but where is the evidence? Because as far as we can see, there's no evidence of your love whatsoever. How can they say that? Like you think you should be reading about some, some lightning strikes taking place at about this point. I think we've got to be fair to the people of Malachi's day. Remember I said they've hung their hopes on some of the promises and prophecies that have, that have uh, been said before their time that, in their opinion, haven't come to fruition. And, and I wrote down a few of them here. From Ezekiel, the land would rebound with miraculous fruitfulness. Isaiah said the population would swell to a mighty throng. Jeremiah has said the nation would arise in esteem to the glorious reign of a new David. Haggai said the temple would once again be filled with glory. And so these people had hung their their hopes on these promises, and yet they look around them, and, and this wasn't reality as far as they were concerned. I mean, they were farming the land again, but they were experiencing all sorts of drought. The the harvests were low. The population uh, was nowhere near the number of the generations from before. They still were under the authority of, of Persia. All of these promises that they looked to. The glorious future hadn't come back to the temple and power and glory. Most nations just didn't give a hoot about them. The promised Messiah hadn't come. They were far from being the nation that was going to be seen as the rulers of the world, which some of them hoped was going to happen. Life was rough. It was difficult for them. And I believe that it was probably a smaller number, but a, a, min- a minority of these people they really considered and grappled with this statement that that God has loved us, and yet they found themselves doubting and maybe even sneering at this declaration of love. But I think for the majority, life was hard, life was busy, 
And they put God on the shelf. Oh, maybe they pull God off the shelf on the weekend. But for most of the time, God was on the shelf because they carried on the business of their life. Because life was hard. It, it, It involved a lot of work. And they became indifferent and apathetic to how God truly felt about them. Fast forward 2,500 years, and God has a declaration for each one of us this morning. I have loved you. I've loved you, I do love you, and I will always love you. And yet I wonder how many of us, as we consider the circumstances of our life, the the troubles, the struggles, the strife, the busyness, we hear those words and we have the same response that the people of Malachi's day did. How have you loved me? How have you? Where's the proof? Because I know that there are some here this morning and there may be some watching online. There's some who are going to listen to this message weeks and months from now. And they feel just like the people of Malachi's day. You feel the same way. You find yourself doubting that God could truly love you. Because if he did, then why are the things that have happened in your life happened or happening? Why has there been that sickness? Why has there been that death? Why has there been that loss of a job? Why has there been that struggle in my marriage? Why has my child rebelled? And on and on and on. If God really, really loved me, he wouldn't allow these things to happen. And I think there's some of us as well. And we've allowed the busyness of life, the busyness of our schedule. We've allowed our favorite sin. We've allowed personal ambition. We've allowed our desire to gain the approval of the world to cause us to lose sight and to misperceive and grow indifferent and apathetic to how God truly feels about us. And so the question that's for us, the question that was for Malachi's people and for everyone in between is this, how do you overcome doubt, misunderstanding and indifference towards the love of God? And I think the answer in Malachi and the answer throughout scripture is this, that we need to consider the wonders of the exhibited and demonstrated love of God. Consider Psalm 13 that Daniel read for us. Like, how do you ask the questions that David asked? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day of sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. He covers the full spectrum of being ignored, neglected, and feeling like God doesn't have much time or much interest in his life. But how does King David overcome his doubts and his questions concerning God's true feelings for him? He pauses and he stops and he considers the demonstrated love of God. 
He considers all the things that God has done for him and his people. And it's only then is he able to continue Psalm 13 and write, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Or consider Romans 12 verse 1. Paul couldn't get to a point where he said the proper response to what God has done for us is to offer your entire life as a sacrifice. And Paul did. Like we can read of all the things that Paul experienced. Being a follower of Jesus for Paul was costly and painful, humanly speaking. And yet he could still write, Given all that God has done for us through Jesus, including this great salvation, the only logical thing to do is to offer your entire self to him as a sacrifice. How did he get to that point? Because he considered the exhibited wonders of the love of God. And he embraced it, and he internalized it, and he knew this was the proper response. How did the people of Malachi's day overcome this indifference, this doubt, this misunderstanding? God gives them a history lesson. And that's what we have in verses 3 to 5. And they're they're kind of confusing verses. But really what he's doing is reminding them, almost like it's point form, of a history lesson. How have you loved us? God responds, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. I get it. That's confusing stuff. And we don't have the time to totally uh, unwrap everything that's in that. But what God is giving the people of Malachi's day is a history lesson. He's reminding them that I've displayed my love for you because I chose you to be my people. I chose Abraham and his descendants and the nations to follow, to proclaim and to display my glory. And I didn't choose them because they deserved it or they earned it or they had achieved it. In fact, I chose them despite of what they were like. I chose you because I delighted in loving you. And I have sustained you. I've delivered you. I've protected you. I've defeated you from your enemies despite your unfaithfulness, despite your sin, despite your indifference. In fact, so great is my love for you. So great is this love relationship I have with you. Even the nations beyond the borders of Israel are going to look at it and go, great is the Lord. You see, if the people of Malachi's day could just take their eyes off their own circumstances, their own problems, their own take on how things in life should be, they would see that God loves them, that God has been faithful, that he has fulfilled his promises. And the promises that haven't been fulfilled, they could have full confidence that they would be fulfilled. 
That's what David was able to do. That was what Habakkuk was able to do. To put their trust in the words of God because of his unfailing love. And so that's how the people of Malachi's day could overcome their indifference and their doubt and their questions, right? By considering the the, the demonstrated wonders of the love of God. What about us today? How do we overcome those things? Well, the answer doesn't change. It's by considering the wonders of his expressed love. In a verse that we have considered, I think three or four times in the last two months here, comes to mind again. Romans 5, verses 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we overcome our doubt of how God truly feels about us? Our misunderstanding of how God feels about us? Our indifference? Consider the demonstrated love of God. Romans 5 verse 8. But God has demonstrated, or God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a demonstrated love. And again, we might say, well, yes, because we often hear it, and I almost tripped over my words as well. God demonstrated his love in this. Well, yeah, that's what he did for me back then. What's he doing for me today? But that's not how it reads, and that's not the tense. It isn't God demonstrated his love. It's God demonstrates his love. The verb tense is present. God demonstrates his love. He's demonstrating his love today in what he did 2,000 years ago when he sent Jesus because the power and the impact of the gospel is eternal. It's changing our lives and changing people's lives and it demonstrates to us his love even today. Every time that we take communion, we are reminded of this great love that God has for us that would allow him to send his son to take our place, to take our sin upon himself so that we can have this right relationship with God that God so eagerly desires to have with us, which just blows my mind, which shows me how much, how much greater his love is than I can even comprehend. So it's a demonstrated love. It's an unconditional love. While we were yet sinners, we didn't deserve it. We didn't achieve it. We didn't attain it. We deserve so much worse. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrates his love by sending his son, Jesus. And it's an infinitely personal love. He did it, yes, for the whole world. For God so loved the world. But he did it for you. He did it for me. While I was living in sin, God already had a plan. He would send his son. And what he accomplished on the cross would be satisfactory for me. And I could have a right relationship with God. That's how much God loves you. And Daniel's going to come up. He's going to lead us in a song. We're going to go into what I think is perfectly fitting into a time of communion. And we're going to consider this love that God has for us. 
And so, as the conclusion of this long series that we've done, let me remind you, regardless of what you think, regardless of what your perception might be, no matter how indifferent or apathetic to it you might be, God loves you.